one, one of the things that's, uh, one of the benefits of um, growing up or living now in a household with four women is that I'm familiar with uh, uh, movies like Princess Diaries. And so for you men who uh, may not be familiar with that particular movie, I am. I'll tell you briefly about it. Uh, this movie is about, it's a common story, but it's, it's a neat story. It's Anne Hathaway. She's a young, uh, young girl, lives in San Francisco, um, kind of struggling with her single mom and, and um, lower middle class, just a struggling life. She wakes up one day and finds out that she's actually an heir to a throne as a princess from the country of Genovia. <laughs> and so the story of the movie where she goes to see the true queen, the, the current queen, which is Julie Andrews, by the way, who's a great play in that. And so the story of the movie is uh, little Mia, or Anne Hathaway, uh, being poor and in San Francisco and going to this country and learning how to be a queen. Uh, the story is that all of a sudden, and, and, and a lot of the story is just uh, Julie Andrews is her, the, new, the current queen training her. What does it mean to be a queen? This is how you must change because of who you are. And to do that, and so and for her, uh, the way she eats, the way she waves, the way she speaks, the way she engages with people, everything has to change. And that's kind of the story of her, the movie, is her, her uh, um, transition into the reality that's true. And I share that with you, uh, because what we're doing these three weeks before we get into Ecclesiastes is something very similar to that. And we offered that last week, we kicked off. I don't like to review much, because it wastes time for the current, but I feel like we need to establish a few things that we learned last week for this three-week series that we're doing on what it means to grow in grace. And so just like uh, Mia, uh, who finds out she's a princess, in many ways we parallel that to this, is that many of us understand that we were saved by the grace of God, that it was a free, unmerited work of God to save us. And we think, oh, we remember our conversion. We understand that's how someone comes into the kingdom of God. That's how someone becomes a Christian, by faith, by grace, through faith. But then we think oftentimes uh, to our dismay as we move on to live in the Christian life now that the Christian life as a new Christian is living some in a different is living kind of under the Ten Commandments and just kind of give the law my best shot. So I'm saved by grace, but now we don't really understand that the grace that saved us is also having the right impact or training us or teaching us the way we ought to live in a new way. That in some sense, we kind of live the old life. We live under the law. Our segue passage last week was from, into our current passage, was Romans 5, 6. Um, this was Paul speaking to the church in Rome and says, But now we are released from the law, having died to what held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul, who wrote to Rome, also wrote our passage. What Paul is saying is that now as a Christian, we live in a new way. And we must learn to live in a way that the very grace that saved us, uh, we saved us from the living a life of the written code. Now that very grace that saved us, we must learn to live in that grace and grow in that grace and have that grace have its right effect on us as we walk with him. So we don't leave the grace that God saved us. We actually grow deeper and we learn in our passage uh, if you look at our passage this morning, by way of setup, notice um, verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation uh, for all people. So let's just establish, before we get to what we're doing today, this remind us of a few things we established. First, that the Christian life is not living for grace in order to earn it, but the Christian life is not under the written code. The Christian life is living by grace and in grace and because of grace, but not to receive it. It has been given to us, and therefore it's for that, to, that reason. Notice and also that the grace of God has appeared, 
Uh, we talked about last week to that being Jesus, and this is personification, that Jesus actually, Paul, everywhere else, he uses this idea of being a peer, someone appearing, he was talking about Jesus. And here he uses a play on words to say, the person of grace has appeared. He has come and he has lived. And that talks about Jesus dwelling here on earth. But then notice what it says about this grace, this person, is that grace is training us, verse 12, to live a holy life, to renounce ungodliness and, the, and or worldly passions, to say yes to things. So it's training us. So the grace that saves us and brought us salvation, that grace is teaching us, not the law. The grace is training us. That word in the Greek, training, is the same word that is used to train up your children. Is that you would even use, in a sense, uh, chastising and keeping and developing and growing. That the grace that saved us, the unmerited favor of God, is supposed to be training us now. So what we've offered is, what is training you? Well, oftentimes it's the law and it's the old ways that we haven't learned to live in Genovia, if you will. And what it means to live... Um, as uh, in the new kingdom and our new role that we have, the new way of the Spirit. So um, notice also you'll see there many wonders. So is this saying bringing salvation? Does that mean that everyone will be a Christian? Which some interpret that verse that way. We don't believe that. Uh, it's twofold. It's twofold in a sense in that verse 11 that potentially uh, some think that it means just that he appeared and everybody saw him. That Speaking to the time that lots of people saw Jesus. It's a stretch because not all the world has seen him. You haven't. We haven't. So it's probably not what that means. But what I think it means, and many do as well, is that the all has appeared to all men, this, this grace that brings salvation to them. If you look at verse 1 of the very first verse of Titus, Titus 1.1, it says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which is which accords with godliness. The very letter, what, this, what it means is God brings grace, brings salvation to those he has, going to, he has said he's going to save. And meaning he will accomplish what he do. He has elected those for grace and for them. So God will bring, it will appear to them. Because why? Because he's doing it. He's the one that is bringing the grace and he's the one that decided they will have it. And so God's bringing it. So we see that. And then lastly, what we established last week, and you'll see here in the slide, is that in this Titus passage of 2, uh, 11, particularly verses through 11 through 13, that, the, that we talked about past, present, and future grace. And in verse 11, it was the past grace that God brought salvation to us, and then we presently, it's doing grace is now doing something in us. As we, and it's affecting us outwardly in our behavior and inwardly in our heart. And remember, it's teaching us to walk closely to God. That's that last phrase there, uh, to walk godly and uh, to live near to God. And then while we wait for the future grace that God, our hope of salvation, he will come or we will be in heaven. So we have a past grace. And so all of it's not a problem. Like you are saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. That's kind of the way to think of it. Just put G-R-A-C-E over the whole passage. All of it's grace. Even the fact today that you're being transformed into the image of God is by his grace and because of his grace. And what we want to do, what I hope we do in these couple of weeks, is that you learn to say what Paul is saying is to be trained by that. Let it train you. Grow deeper in your understanding. Look, it doesn't, look what it produces. It produces saying no to ungodliness. It produces a holy life. It produces a transformed life. It produces change. So if you worry that if we talk about the grace of God so much that people will just kind of let go and let God just kind of get a grace card, that's not what grace, you don't know what the grace is. You haven't encountered this grace. Some would say that grace is traumatic. That it, like all traumas, that it has to have an effect on you. 
And look what it does. So, um, so that's what we're doing. Well, where do you and I live today? What we're doing today, we kind of established uh, last week, I'd love for you to go back and listen to it, but we live today in present grace. If you're a follower of Christ, and if you're not a follower of Christ, you haven't, you're not in present grace. You haven't, salvation hasn't come to you. But if you're a follower of Christ, you live what we would call present grace from this particular passage. And, um, and so we'll have a, have a slide here. So this is where you live. So imagine, I hope you can see that. Maybe I didn't make the people, that was my best effort at a, at a slide. Uh, but you see past grace, present grace, future grace. And so imagine that that, um, that particular cross is where at some point where God, you met God, your salvation occurred, where your conversion happened in your life. And so you're living presently here, and one day you'll die or either Jesus will come back. So that's a tomb. Or a, a, so that's where we live. You live in present grace. And what we're going to do today is that we're going to say, um, we're going to look back and look at the past grace, what God brought to us and how it ought to train us. All right? Next week, we'll look at the future grace, and we'll talk a little bit more about the present grace. We'll look to the future and how it gives us hope as well. But right now, we're going to look at the past grace. So I'll segue with this. Um, you saw that cross. You can go back to that. Sorry. Um, when we look back, we're going to look at those four things, effectual calling, regeneration, justification, adoption. We'll explain those. Um, but we're getting, I'm getting a little specific, but in general, just hear this. In the Old Testament, God had his people, they were always remembering the Exodus. They would always in the Psalms remember God saving them. And now you and I have a new and better Exodus. We have the better Moses. We have the Jesus who has brought us out and delivered us. And so now we look back to that. And in essence, it is looking back to see the cross and the fullness of it. And what it has accomplished for us and all that Jesus did. Seeing him and what he did and his death and resurrection and ascension for us. That's all of that. I can't cover all that. But in general, that's what Paul means when he says, the love of Christ compels me. And where was that love demonstrated? At the cross. And so we look back and that has power to train us in the present. Not the law. The law has a purpose. We're not talking about that now. But even what we confess together is the law does not save us. It reminds us that we need it to save us. That's one of his purposes. So just this week, um, uh, many of you know my mom died this summer, and uh, it's been six months, and um, the night she died, I had a, um, a message from her. She was in the hospital, and we were dialoguing, and so I didn't know it, unbeknownst to me. She left one final message before she went to bed, and I, um, and then the next morning I find out she's passed away. And so I've had that message unopened on my phone for six months. I just hadn't known when to open it <laughs> and talk about it and look at it. Um, and so it, I thought, maybe I'll do it the holidays, maybe. Well, this week, Thursday, uh, Thursday the 26th, was her birthday. And I decided, you know what, that's what I'm going to look at. I'm going to hear her voice and, uh, and see it. So I spent some time with the Lord, and then I was able to... Um, uh, and then I decided to listen to it. And I wept, and it was really good. I, enjoyed, I, I had a hard time weeping, and I wept, hearing her voice. But here's what I journaled, what I wanted you to know. Here's what the message was about. Shane, I love you. Shane, I want you to know my dad has cancer. She said, hey, your dad's going to be fine. He's going to go stay with our friends in Birmingham. He's got a place to stay, so don't worry about him. He's so pitiful, and she's worried about dad. Worry about him. And Shane, hey, I'm fine. I'm just weak. Just lost a lot of fluids today that I'll be out in the morning. That's what they told me. And they're just like my mom had always been. 
in her last moments, concerned about others. Her love, we're loving my dad, worried about how I was doing, how was I going to bed, worried about her. And I journaled, here's what I journaled. Uh, listen, my mom was a sinner, she wasn't perfect. We had a really, really good relationship. And he ch- God chose to give me a good mom. As a sinner, I don't know how, I couldn't have had a better mom as a sinner than what I had. But here's what I journaled. There's something so beneficial for someone to have someone in their life who just loves them no matter what and is always thinking of them. That's the cross. So when you look back, we're going to... We're going to use just a couple of kind of technical words. I mean, if you were to say, that's what you need to look back and remember. He just loves us. He's way more thoughtful than my mom. He's, he's way more welling within him to love you. And he, and so I, in essence, you know, I could tell you, how did your mom love you? What, in what ways did you love This is what, I'm, what we're talking about tonight. Here's some of the things that God brought to us in his love. Does that make sense? I guess we could go home after that, huh? So, Lord, as we, um, as we look at these f- few thoughts here about what you brought to us in the salvation, I pray that it has a great big stamp of love all over it. And I pray that maybe for some, uh, in many ways, God, so many people who are Christians, who did come to faith by grace and understand that they live as in their hearts, they functionally, and I do too, intend this, we functionally live in the written code. And Christianity just doesn't feel like love. It feels like something different. And I pray as we look at this, this rich passage, one of the greatest passages in my life that you've used, that, that, that you would teach grace to train us. And we would all be embarked more and more on the, on the, on the journey and the hope that we have what grace has brought us and will bring to us. And it would train us in the present. That it would have its effect on us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, our first, um, the first thing, uh, so just so you know, it's not an outline, but these are the two questions we're asking from the outline, if you want it. What did he bring in salvation or past grace? What did God bring to us? And how does it train me? So, we're just, I'm going to touch on these four things and what, what they mean, what he brought to you. Uh, and these four things in his love he brought to us or how he saved us and how does it train us. The first one is this. Um, and so just so you know, this is, uh, we're not going to exposit the particular passage much anymore. This is more like a systematic theology. It's like what is in- encompassed in the grace that he brought? What does the rest of Scripture say was brought to us in this grace? Okay, so that's what we're doing. The first one is this. You'll see that uh, it, the first that he brought to us was effectual in the past grace of his life. There was a, what we would call an effectual Sexual calling. And um, what does that word mean? It means that God in our past, um, at some point, he has been wooing us and wooing us. And if you look back over the course of your life pre-conversion, that he was orchestrating things. Like, why did I wind up at Livingston University playing football? And why did Calvin Cochran, uh, this African-American man, come in my dorm room? And why did this happen to me? We look at our lives pre-Christ, and we begin to see God was orchestrating, working our story. And at some point, he eventually says, come forth. And he effectually calls. And when God calls, people come. Why? Because he's God. And it's never without effect. 
So that's our conversion, right? Just what First Peter says, just as he who called you is holy, be holy. It's like Lazarus coming forth. We were effectually called. What God brought to you was a calling of your life. How did you get here? How did you become a Christian? He, you were dead and you were in your sins and he brought you forth and he spoke. Just as he spoke of the world in his heart, he calls you. And when he calls a Christian, they always come. Because his grace becomes in that way. So you see these. Uh, the verse, Romans 3, 10, 11, said, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. So it wasn't your story. Where did you think? No, I was kind of seeking God. You weren't. Even when you thought you were seeking God, you were seeking something for yourself. You were thinking of a way to save yourself. You weren't seeking God. You were seeking a self-salvation kind of thing. But God, in his mercy, no one is seeking God. There's no such thing as a seeker church, right? Because people don't seek God. That's what Romans tells us. The only way people come is that God calls them. Does that make sense? Okay. And you see that, John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's the, it's the language of a well, that water can't come out of the well. It has to be drawn up. That's what they understand. No one can come to the Father. No one can come unless God effectually calls you. All right? That's what it is. And so what did he call you out? So let me just say this. So effectual calling, and if you can get rid of the theological word and say this, effectual calling is God saving you from the persuasion of sin. He finally at some point calls you, and what you were looking for, you say, no, this is the treasure. I'm more persuaded now that this is the right thing. This is the treasure I've longed for, and we see it. He saves you from the persuasion of sin. So you can think of yourself as being persuaded by idols and all debauched life, whatever. It's saving you from that, any life. But also, just to be honest, if you've grown up around the church, he also saved you from your righteousness and self-saving. He saves moral people. That was what Jesus was doing with the older and the younger brother. Of course he saves the rebels who run off and find themselves with prostitutes. But what was that parable telling us? That also that the righteous people can be just as far from God as those who are uh, in rebellion. In their righteousness, they're leveraging God to get what they want. It's self-seeking. And the, el the older brother was just as far away from the father as the rebellion, although he lived right underneath his nose. So he persuades you from self-saving, and he persuades you. When someone becomes a Christian, they repent of their righteousness, and they repent of their sinfulness. And it could have never saved us. So he brings us. That is an effect, what God brings by his grace to you. So how does that train you? As you look back, if you remember that one of the things that saw Bryson, that the way I was saved is that he called me, I didn't call myself. It brings grace.
this. There we go. I just want you to know I hate this one. But it's working, all right? You end up having to wrestle this one. Effectual calling, how does it train you in this present and presently in your life? It reminds you that one, maybe you don't realize that God loved you so much that he came and sought you and won you over and delivered you out of the miry pit. Jesus said, I've come to seek and save the lost. You are of such great value to him. At the same time, this doctrine tells us that I was just like everybody else. I'm not smarter and figure it out. It wasn't that I was a little sick and God kind of gave me a pill. I was lost and he found me. That's the very essence of the hymn we sing, Amazing Grace. I was lost and I was found. I didn't figure it out. He found me. He came to me and he won my heart and he persuaded me. And so he sought you with great compassion. And um, so it's humbling and it can teach you. And so do you see, like, I can't explain all the examples in life. But the fact that he effectually called you, that salvation, your salvation was never built upon you, but was built upon him. Now I've got some sure footing for my life. Now I really can't sing these beautiful songs we sang that I depend on you. Next, what does he bring us? He brings us not only effectually calls, but then he regenerates us. So these are kind of simultaneous, what theologians have said over the day. But he regenerates you. What does that mean? He, he makes you do what generation? To bring life. He gives life to you. He breathes life into you. So look, look Colossians 2.13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of flesh, God made alive together with him. Titus 3.5. He saved us, not because of the righteous deeds we had done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration. You see, there's the exact word. That the Holy Spirit's job is to come in and breathe life. That's one of his roles in the Trinity. He regenerates you. You didn't have a pulse. You were dead. And so blessed is the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Born again is not some weird cuckoo guy in the stands with John 3, 16 saying you must be born again. It is the regenerating work of the Spirit. And God brings that to us. So not only were we dead and he calls, but dead men can't respond. Dead men can't even stink. That's bacteria. We do nothing. So when he calls, just like he calls Lazarus, it's not like you and I could have ever responded. We were dead. Now listen, not everybody who has fallen, this is the nature of total depravity, not everybody is as sinful as they could be. But what we believe about the nature of sin is that there's not a single part of us that's not contaminated with sin. And, and then what we also know is that all of us are not just spiritually sick, but we're spiritually dead. And so it's not like when he called, we could have responded. So think about that. He effectually calls, but then guess what he does? He breathes the life in you so you can respond. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He calls, then he regenerates. And here's a very important thing. Here's what separates us in some different ways. When he regenerates, think of this in this way. The first breath, when you become alive, like you've ever woken up and just been asleep. But the first breath that you take, you and I take, is what we call faith. Some say repent and believe. But at that moment, the first breath, the, I was blind and I couldn't see. Well, I was dead and couldn't do anything. I'm blind, I can't see. I'm dumb, I can't understand. But all of a sudden, I come to life. And when he breathes life into us, what does the, what does the one he is saving do? We believe. That's our first breath. I see him. It's Jesus. He is better. 
So the first breath of the regenerating work is faith and repentance. So let me just say that. Sometimes you're taught, you won't be taught that here. If we do, it's by accident. It's not that you have faith and you repent. You repent and have faith and therefore you're regenerated. That's not the gospel. That's just another way of hiding works. You'd have to say, there's something to me that's a little better than so-and-so to my left. And guess what that produces? Arrogance or defeat because you're not sure how much faith you had. But what the gospel is, is that he calls us and he breathes us. And then after regenerating, the first breath is that we believe, we trust. Now, if effectual calling saves you from the persuasion of sin, at some point he, you finally realize he's better than everything else. He orchestrates it to bring you to that point. And then he calls you and then you can't come forward until he regenerates you. Regeneration saves you from the power of sin. That's so what the Bible says, we were slaves to sin. We were dead in our transgressions. But now, you're alive. And the power of sin reigns no more. I have a new heart. I'm a new creation. I'm alive. And I don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. Now, we won't go into the era of sinless perfection until Jesus returns. What it does mean is this, is that I'm alive and I can overcome. At some level, now I'm alive and I can fight sin. All of the, uh, all the commandments in the Bible, draw near in me and draw, so that I might draw near to you and seek, you'll seek me when you find me, those are sanctification verses. Those are verses that assume that you've been made alive. And so now, somehow, God has regenerated and the power of sin has been broken. Now, think about that. Think about how dead we were. That the cosmic speaking God of heaven who spoke the world into existence and everything we think he had to use his words, his calling, his power to break the chains of sin. That's how enslaved we were to it. That's how dead we were. And he brings that by grace. So in the present, so how does that train you? Listen, there's all kinds of ways. You gotta, that's a great conversation, all of these. How, how could that be trained to me? What, what areas of my life, what does this truth mean? Well, you might look back at this truth and say, I have a fear that there's no way I feel like I can face. But you have power now. You have a power. You may have a besetting sin in your life. You're like, I don't know if I can ever get rid of this thing I always lose. And sometimes what you need to be reminded of is that we have the, he who is in us is greater than anything in the world. And the power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead now dwells within me. And I need to know that I have power. The Bible helps us understand. It's not like I'm shooting lightning bolts and fixing everything. This isn't the prosperity, the prosperity message. But nevertheless, don't let that heresy hide from us the great power that you and I have. The Holy Spirit dwells within us now as a follower. And so I have power to face things. And it began to train me. It trains me to say, I can. I can look to this thing because I have power. I'm alive. The insecurities, you think that you can never. You have the power now to overcome it. Thirdly, what he brings to us is Justification. All right, I'm sorry, Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace through God. We're justified by faith. The Westminster Confession says, 
Well, is the, the faith justify? Well, did faith justify me? Yes, but faith was the tool that God used to justify you. Does that make sense? Because where did the faith come from? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. So we go back through it. He called me. He regenerated me. My first breath was faith. Even the first breath, where did it come from? Him. It was a gift. And so he, now he's given, and through faith, he justifies me. He justifies me. Romans 4, 5, but to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Galatians 3, 24, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Do you see that? That the law was never meant to justify you. It can't, nor can it train you the way it should. It'll harden your heart or lead you to despair. It'll make you arrogant. But it cannot train you in the way grace can. The law was actually given to tutor you, like we confess in the children's catechism. It's from this verse. To tutor you to say, I need a Savior. I can't obey it. It's just a lamp into my feet and a light to my path. We'll get into that later next week. And... Um, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace. Do you see that? So it was a gift. It was a grace. He brought it to you. So justification is a legal term. This is a courtroom and the holy courtroom of God. You've heard it before. The whole Reformation was built around this truth in many ways, other truths, but this one, it's a courtroom term. And, uh, and the reality is that every person will stand in the courtroom of God and face judgment according to his sin. And what justification means is this, is that you, in that courtroom, you are guilty, but what happens in that courtroom, by what God brings to us, is that we get the record of Christ in the courtroom of God, and Christ took our record of sin. And we are exchanged. It's called the great exchange. This is God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is a declared justification. So let me just say it this way. In the courtroom of God, justification means this, that Jesus gets what our lives deserved and we get what his life deserved. What did his life deserve? Fellowship with God. Perfection. It's a declared once and for all righteousness. So it means if you were to go into a traffic court room and um, walk in and see the traffic court judge and stand before him, and yes, I broke the law, and you're like, all right, bring, bring me, uh, the judge stands up and says, guess what? Here you have a perfect driving record. You're like, what? Why am I here? No, you have a perfect driving record. Well, where'd my driving record go? And he points to the corner of the courtroom and says, Jesus has your record now. And the fees and the fines that are for this court, I will give to him. You are free. And it's a permanent righteousness. It's a forever righteousness. It's an account-settling righteousness. It's not a process of righteousness, which is what many denominations teach. That's what the Reformation is about. Was that it's not that God saves me and I'm in. It's not a weighing of the law. No one can obey it. So Christ comes in and he says, my record according to the law is given to you. What is your record in the courtroom of the law if you're a follower of Christ? Perfection. He clothes you in that. And so, how does that train you? How does that train you? It can train you in all kinds of ways. But, here, I'll offer this, just this one, one way. It brings freedom. Okay? It brings freedom. If salvation was by works, then you and I would live a life of wondering how good is good enough. 
And how much have I obeyed the law? Am I in today? Am I out? Oh, no, I, I cussed when I hit my finger with the, uh, with the hammer. Oh, no, am I, what about the sins omission commission? It, it would be a place. I liken it. I always tell athletes this. Imagine you're playing a game, and the record and the score, and you're playing a game, and the score is a million to zero playing football. It's a real score. And yet there's still time left on the clock, and you have to play the second half. You scored a million points in the first half. Literally, seven points, one point for extra, seven points, one point for extra point, all that. You're playing the game. How would you play a game? Is anybody, if you, if this is a sport, sorry for non-athletes. But in sports, if you know you're going to win, you play pretty free. You're like, eh, I might try to go for an interception here. Eh, if I mess up, I know the coach is a little bit mad because I broke the rules, but we're going to win the game. There's a freedom to it, right? But if the game is close, how do you play? Oftentimes, <laughs> I can't run as fast. Oh, no. What I do is make decisions. You play the game with your hind end drawn up. <laughs> but justification says in the courtroom of God, the game is over. For freedom's sake, Christ has set you free. The battle is won. And so there's freedom in that. And then in so many ways, it begins to train you. When you, when you do like I do, and I think, Lord, I haven't spent time with you in a few days, and so... I'm going to spend time with you and then talk to you about it. What am I trying to do? I'm trying to self-justify myself. Justification tells me I can always come into the courtroom of God with freedom. And that I don't come standing before him with any record other than that of Christ. That will train you differently. Do you see that? I can't get into all the ins and outs of it. And then lastly, the last thing it brought to us is adoption. we got to get to it, the fourth one. But the last thing he brings is is, uh, I look ridiculous with this, don't I? I'm sorry you haven't to look at that. I'll throw it over my shoulder. Um, the last thing he brings is adoption. It says this, Romans 8, 15 and 17, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received, oh, well, we'll go to it. We received an adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness that our spirit, we are children of God. So not only in the courtroom of God are we declared righteous, but it's better than that. It's not just the forgiveness of sins. It's just not a perfect record. He says, then I make you my family member and I make you my child. Justification would have been enough for all of eternity to be forgiven. But it's greater than that. It's the highest privilege of the gospel. He says, I make you an heir with Christ. I bring you in to my family. But all to do to receive him who believe in his name, he gave him the right to become children of God who were born not of the blood, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. See how they were born? They weren't born by themselves. They were born by the calling, regenerating, justifying work and grace of God. And they're brought into his family. So he saves you. So here's the deal. Justification saves you from the penalty. Let's go through them all. Effectual calling saves you from the persuasion of sin. Regeneration saves you from the power of sin. Justification saves you from the penalty. You don't have the penalty of sin anymore. And lastly, adoption saves you from the position of sin. You have a new position. What is that position? Co-heir with Christ, son of God. Do you actually know that John 8 teaches that there's two types of people in the world? Those that are sons and daughters of the devil and those that are sons of God. There's only two kinds. Not everybody is a child of God in that sense. When people say that, they're referring to image bearers. But you move from being an object of wrath of the wrong family to a new position greater than Genovia. You are in the courtroom of the father and the king of the, the king of the world, and he's your father. And he says, and I give you a spirit. What does that spirit say? It cries out, Abba. It calls out, Daddy. It cries out, oh, my gosh. So 
He's the king, Father. What an incredible thought. And all four of these are by his grace. You had nothing to do. Nothing you do in present grace affects the standings of all of us. Whatever you do right now, if you're a follower of Christ, it does not affect adoption. It does not affect justification. It does not affect regeneration. You don't die again. It doesn't change his mind. You're his. And you stand on the grace of God, and that brings it to you. The greatest illustration for me over the years to hear about adoption was the study called, uh, of the, that they did later in the 60s around the Pied Piper, uh, Project Pied Piper. Do you remember that? From World War II. And in World War II, when London thought they were going to be, and England thought they were going to be bombed by the Germans, they came up with a strategy, a very gracious strategy, a safe one. They knew their cities would be bombed. And what they decided to do was that they decided to take their children and send them out to the countryside so they'd be safe. Take them from their parents and send them out there. And that's how C.S. Lewis, right? That's what the story in, in England when he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, the children are going out to stay with an uncle. Go out to family members, anybody outside the cities that could take care of them. You know what they have found out? You know what they have found out? They begin to study it immediately. After a year's worth of study, I think it was Freud's daughter, but here's what they found out. Let me read it to you. What they observed over and over again was the internal trauma of being sent to the calm countryside was resulting in significantly greater mental health issues and problems for these children of various ages rather than war. The kids that experienced the bombs in the cities, if they were with their parents, they did way better. Isn't that crazy? I tell you why that's true. Because family is an institution created by God, how he governs his world. And parents are a picture of God to their children. And so it hurts when they hurt them. And it hurts when they're gone. And it feels great when they love them. Because he governs the world. That is the structure of our world. And adoption is that case. It doesn't matter what you go through. Adoption has that kind of power. Bring on the war of life. Because nothing can affect your standing with God. And what does he, not only your standing, but it is this particular gift that his love is fatherly. And he showers you. I want to be with you. I didn't just want to save you. I love you. I weep over you. I want you to be near to me, son. I'm the father waiting for you always to come to my presence. I'm so glad to see you. I love you, my son, my daughter. So the grace of God from our past saves us from the persuasion, the power, the penalty, and the position of sin that we once had. And Jesus says, let that train you. Don't go back to the old code. Adopted children live as if they're loved and their standing is, uh, is free. So um, Grace Church, may we, you did nothing for this. It's yours according to your Father's power and mercy. May that transform us. May we be trained by it. May it make us want to say no to sin. Why? Because we are so loved. He has demonstrated his love in so many ways. And would his love compel us to say no? Let's pray. Father, as we sing...
here in response. And as we bring a deacon's offering before you, we uh, confess that we are um, we're trained by other things. We're trained by our own desires sometimes. We're trained by the law. We're trained by many things of the written code. But we lose sight of your grace. And so, God, we pr I pray that these realities that were brought to us in salvation, that were adopted, forgiven, called, regenerated, justified, that those who begin to have the impact they should appropriately on us as a church and our lives, that it, it would be, that we would spend, that we would begin to explore them in a way that would um, transform us. Would you teach us deeper the breadth, the depth, the height of your love in these things that you've brought to us? In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.